Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, this morning we're continuing our study of Matthew, and we are in Matthew chapter um, 19, the very last verse, that's verse 30, and we will be moving into the first part of chapter 20. This is Jesus' parable of the laborers in the vineyard. So let's read together in God's Word, Matthew 19, 30 through 20, verse 16. This is the Word of God. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. And again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one, of the, uh, answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called but few are chosen. Our God and Father, we pray as we do each week that you would by your Spirit unfold your word to us, this letter you have given to us. Open it up and give us understanding and press it home by your Holy Spirit that we would come under the sway of Jesus' words and be your faithful children, your faithful workers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From the time we're very little, one of our strongest sensibilities is fairness. I mean, how many times have you heard little kids say, that's not fair? And from the time we are very little, we measure fairness by comparing ourselves to others. What do they get and what do we get? Now, it's okay if we get more or if we're treated better. 
But it is not okay if we get less or we're treated worse. And our response is always the same. That's not fair. Now this sentiment is universal with mankind. It is also one of the greatest causes of conflict among people in every context. Among people within family, people in the workplace, friends, every kind of grouping you can name. It is one of the greatest causes of conflict. It is also one of the greatest causes of resentment toward others. Either those who are giving out favors or giving out things or others who are similarly situated to you. And it is one of the greatest causes of resentment toward God whom even unbelievers instinctively know is in control of this world. And this is just as true in the church as it is in the world. The church, as you know, if you've been in the church for uh, any length of time, the church is full of sinners. Uh, There's conflict in the church. There's envy in the church. There's resentment in the church. There's bitterness in the church. There are all of these kind of things in the church. And one of the greatest causes of conflict in the church is this. It's our sense of fairness and the way we think about fairness in comparing ourselves to other people. Well, that's not the way it should be. The church should be a place that is free of this particular way of thinking. Because when you get down to it, the way we think about fairness, every time we say that's not fair, most times what that really means is What about me? It should not be this way in the church, and that's why Jesus is telling this parable. Jesus here looks to shake up the whole way we think about fairness. He wants to change the way we're always comparing ourselves to others and comparing what we receive to what they receive and compare what we're asked to bear and what we're asked to do to what they're asked to bear or what they are asked to do. And deeper than that, Jesus wants to change the whole way we think about our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And so Jesus goes about this with somewhat of a wrecking ball. He tells us a parable that cuts right across our sense of fairness. I mean, here you have uh, four groups of laborers who are called out to work in the landowner's vineyard. Some of them are hired very early in the morning, so they're starting first thing. They're going to work all day long. They're going to work a 12-hour day. They're going to work right through the heat of the day all the way to the end. 12-hour day is a long day, especially a long day if you're doing physical labor outside. The landowner is also going to go out and hire other workers, but they're not going to be working all day. He's going to go out and hire some in the sixth hour. That's half day, sixth hour, noon. You've got some who are working from six to six. You've got some who are coming out at noon. They're working half day, all right? Then you got a few others who are coming out at the ninth hour. Three o'clock in the afternoon, they're coming out to work. And then finally, 
you got some people showing up at five o'clock in the afternoon. Five o'clock. What's the point, even? They're coming out at five o'clock in the afternoon and they're working for one hour. Then it's time to be paid. Well, the first thing that seems a little weird is that the landowner starts with those who started at five o'clock and pays them first. Now, if we were running this operation, confess, admit it, we for good reason would say, now we wanna pay first the ones who've been here all day long. We wanna pay them first, right? And of course we would uh, prorate the wage scale, right? So much per hour. Those who worked 12 hours, those who worked six, those who worked three, those who worked one. But he pays the ones who worked one hour first and he pays them the same thing that he had agreed to pay for those who are working all day. So, now if you are among those who have been there since six o'clock in the morning, what are you gonna think when you see the owner pay those who just showed up at five o'clock? I mean, they just got here, they barely here. How, how can you even explain to them what they're supposed to do in an hour so they can do anything productive? They're getting a denarius. They're getting a full day's wage, which is what you were promised to get. So what are you going to be thinking? You're going to be thinking, this is, this is good. He's going to give us more, of course. And then you find out he only gives you what he had originally promised you. Now, it's not unfair that he gives you what he had originally promised you. But again, what seems unfair? Compare ourselves to those who only worked one hour. We go, well, that's not fair. You look at the, um, the early workers here, the first group, what they complain about is they say, you made them equal to us. See, that's the rub. You made them equal to us when they're not equal to us. Now, if you think about it, admit it. Your sense of fairness and my sense of fairness agrees completely with those who started work at six o'clock in the morning, doesn't it? Anybody here who disagree with that, right? That's our sense of fairness. So this is a shocking parable. I mean, if you heard this story and you took it out of the Bible and it's not Jesus saying it, okay, and him making a certain point and you were simply told the story we would all here disagree with the owner. We would all agree with those who started work at six o'clock in the morning and worked all day. Now, Jesus, this is, intends to shock us with this. That's exactly what he intends to do. He intends to make us think about what could possibly make this fair. What could possibly make this good? Because you see, that's what he says. That's what the owner says. He says to the uh, servants who have been working all day, who are complaining against him, he's saying, do you complain against me because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? Clear implication being, it is good for me to pay them the same as you. That is my goodness in operation there. 
And it is your evil in you, your evil eye, that causes you to have a problem with that. Well, let's go back through here because there are some other details that we need to notice. First of all, a vineyard is often used as a metaphor in Scripture for God's people. Sometimes God's people are called His, his bride, sometimes it's called His city, sometimes it's called His temple, and sometimes God's people are called His vineyard. God's people are the place where God's fruit should be seen and tasted. Right? God enjoys the fruit. He comes into His vineyard. He wants to enjoy the fruit. And the world should be able to enjoy the fruit. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Where is that tasting happening? It tasting happens in the Lord vineyard. Where do you go to taste wine? To a vineyard. And so that's the purpose of God's people. They are the vineyard. And vineyard laborers, sometimes called vine dressers, are often used as metaphor in Scripture for the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel. But as we will see in a moment, it's also fairly used of all of God's people. For all God's people are called to work in God's vineyard. Now, the later workers here in this parable, especially those who are hired the 11th hour, are ones that no one wants. That's part of the point of the parable. He comes to those uh, on the 11th hour and finds them standing around. He says, why are you standing around idle? They said, because nobody hired us. So the picture you have there in the ancient world is those who are looking to be day laborers are coming into the center of the village where the landowners are going to come when they're looking for day laborers. And, and they will hire uh, the ones who were there. These are the ones, after all the owners have come in and hired up day laborers for their vineyards and their fields, nobody hired these are the ones nobody wanted. These are the ones when you're choosing up football teams or baseball teams or basketball teams, don't get picked or they're left around at the very, very end. And so here's this landowner. He is a guy who is already acting strangely for a typical owner of a vineyard. He's not acting in a normal way. You hire the best laborers and you hire them early. This guy is coming out continually and hiring others and bringing them out in the field. He's going out in the 11th hour. What's the point at that time of day? Hiring the ones nobody else wanted. Well, we can see, of course, that the landowner here is God. And this is the point. This is who God hires. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, you know, consider Look around and consider and be honest about whom God calls into His church. He says, look at ourselves. He said, there's not many by the world's estimation who are wise or rich or powerful. God's church is filled with people who aren't the first to be picked. God is out there calling those people to come and to work in his vineyard. And when he calls us, he gives us a job. He gives us a job. As Jesus said, my father is working, and I am working. The father has work. The father has a vineyard. If we're to be made his children, 
that we enter into his work. Now, it's also very interesting what the landowner promises the groups who come out later in the day, starting with the sixth hour and the ninth hour and the eleventh hour. He doesn't promise them any wage. He doesn't discuss money with them at all. He simply says, whatever is right, I will give you. You can see that in verse 4 and then in verse, again in verse 6. Whatever is right, you will receive. So there's no wage, there's no negotiating with them. He calls them, he sends them out and says, whatever is right, you will receive. Now this implies, of course, contrary to our notion of fairness, that it was right for the landowner to give the same thing to all the workers, regardless of when they entered the vineyard. Further, as I've already noted, it says the landowner gave them all the same thing because he is good. And the first workers were evil for resenting the fact that they were treated equal to the other workers. Now, what we're starting to see here is that this starts out looking like a normal story about a normal landowner and normal workers and a normal vineyard. But the more we look at it, the more we realize that this is not a typical landowner, this is not a typical vineyard, these are not typical workers, and this is not a normal wage scale here. There's something different about the relationship between the owner and the workers than a typical employer-employee relationship, where wage and hourly wage and how long you worked would determine what you receive. There's something else underneath the surface here that is going on. And I think what is going on here, even though it's never expressly stated, is this theme that Jesus has brought up again and again in the Gospel of Matthew, starting all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is the theme of the fact that we are God's children. Remember, Jesus taught the disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, and it starts with the words, our Father. Now that was radical. That was radical. I mean, the concept is already there in Scripture in the Old Testament, but that was still radical thinking for first century Jews who would not even say the name of God. They considered it whole, so holy. You know, if you, if, you, if you did something wrong, if you entered into the temple, into God's presence, and you weren't the high priest on the Day of Atonement. You know, you're consumed by the fire of God. And now Jesus is teaching them to pray, to not only say the name of God, but to say, Our Father. And he keeps emphasizing that theme all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, to teach them to think like sons and daughters of God. And there's other parables where Jesus has the same lesson. To stop thinking of yourself as an employee who's related to God as though he's an employer who has demands that he's going to put on your time and a company rule book that you have to keep. And you're going to make widgets and you're going to earn wages. And if you earn enough wages, you can go to heaven. But if you don't earn enough wages, you're going to go to hell. And then Jesus was this super employee who earned tons of wages and has a big bank account. And he can send you some wages. I mean, so 
again and again and again in the New Testament, Jesus strikes down that way of thinking and says the relationship between you and God is that of a father to a son or father to a daughter. That is the difference. Think about the prodigal son parable. It's the same point. There it's a little bit more obvious than in our current parable. But the whole point there, and it's really not as much about the younger son, the prodigal son, as it is about the older brother. Because the older brother in the parable, you see, that's Israel. Israel is the one who's been working with the father for all these years. Prodigal son, that's the Gentile nations that have walked away from God ages ago and have spent their lives, you know, living like pigs, basically. And now the Gentiles are going to start coming home. Okay? And they're going to be received, and a great celebration is going to be thrown for them. And what is the older brother going to do? He's basically going to say, that's not fair. What he says to his father is, you never threw me a party, and I have been with you all these years doing all this work. The point of the parable is that the older brother is a son who thinks like an employee. He's a son who thinks like an employee. What does the father say to him? Son, all I have is yours. You've always been with me. All I have is yours. He doesn't say anything about a wage. He talks about inheritance, which is what children receive. The fact that you work means that you're entering into the father's work. It doesn't mean you're working for a wage. He's talking about a wage. This is all ours. This is all yours, son, daughter. This is all yours. You receive everything. Think about Jesus' parable of the unprofitable servant, which he tells in the Gospel of Luke. And he, again, it's a shocking little parable. It's a shocking little parable. He says, we're all unprofitable servants. He says, think about it. If you have a Lord... And you have, who has a servant, and the servant has been out in the field working all day long, and it's supper time, and the servant comes back into the house, what is going to happen? Is the servant going to sit down and eat? No. The servant is first going to serve his master. The servant is going to serve food to his master so his master can eat. And then the servant will eat. And then Jesus says, so each of you, when you have done everything that you should do, say to yourself, I am an unprofitable servant. That's a shocking little parable. The point is, is to shock us out of the whole way of thinking of ourselves as God's employees where we're on some kind of wage merit basis with him. The point is, how can we ever go beyond what we owe God anyway so that he owes us some kind of wage? Because a wage is owed, right? An inheritance is given. A reward is given. A gift is given. 
A wage is earned. To earn, you have to be capable of doing something that obligates the other person so that they are wrong if they don't pay you. So let's just start out, before we ever get to sin, let's just start out in the beginning with the creation. God has created everything. He has crowned man with glory and honor. He has made him in his image. He has put them over the whole creation. He has given them fellowship with himself. He's bidden them to eat from the tree of life. They have eternal life. They have fellowship with God. They are the sons and daughters of God. They're placed over everything. Okay, what can Adam and Eve do that will go beyond what they owe to God as their father for all of his love so that they can turn around and say, you are now obligated to pay us this wage. It's impossible. Then we have sin come into the picture. We turn away from God. We rebel from God. We try to, we try to push Him out of our lives. We try to live our lives apart from Him. And that shows up in so many ways. And then God says, oh, no, you don't. You will be my sons. You will be my daughters. I'm going to send my son. He's going to become one of you. He's going to die to break the stranglehold of Satan, sin, and death over this world and over you so that you're restored to this relationship to me as sons and daughters. And now God has done all that through Christ. I ask you what now could we do that would ever go beyond what we owe God so that we could say that God is obligated to pay us something, to pay us a wage. Jesus' point in all of these parables and these shocks, some of them shocking, is to shock us out of the whole way of thinking like we're workers, like we're employees, like we're going to receive a wage. But you see, that is so embedded in us, thinking that way. And part of the reason why it's embedded in us, now Adam and Eve before the fall would not have thought that way, but as sinners, that's embedded in us. And I've really thought about it a lot. Why would, we, why would we ever want to think that way? Why would we constantly go back to that way of thinking? And I, the only thing I can think of is this. As sinners, when we turn away from God, you know, the way the fall shows up in us is that it, the, the very nature of our first sins ends up working its way out in us. And our first sin through Adam and Eve is a turning away from God. It's a pushing distant from God pushing him out of the picture, turning away from him, not trusting his love and his wisdom and his power and, and, and uh, you know, listening to another word, doing their own thing. And so the Bible says that one of the things that we struggle with at the deepest level of sinners is just an antipathy toward God. We just don't want him messing around in our lives. It, now, if we're in trouble, if we really need something, you know, as, as the old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. We're in the foxhole and we're about to die. We cry out to God, we want him to help. But other than that, we don't want God interfering in our lives. We don't want to be that close with God. And we continue to struggle with that even after we become Christians, don't we? Don't we? Yes, we do. And that's at the root of so many of our other problems. And you see, this is the thing. We, in our sinfulness, would actually prefer an employee employer relationship with God as long as we have a good contract. 
as long as it's a good contract that doesn't require too much of us and pays a good wage with good benefits, we prefer that arm's length employer-employee relationship with God. Tell us what you want, God. Give me a list. What do you want? What do you want me to do? I'll check those off. You give me good benefits. You give me good wages, and we're good. Because of our struggle deep down within us with this antipathy with God and, and not wanting to be close with God the way we should and love Him the way we should, father-son, father-daughter, that's too close for us. It's too close for us. The implications are too great. The demands are too great. When you think about it, the expectations are too great. N.T. Wright, in his little everyone commentary on Matthew, said words to the effect that God doesn't negotiate a contract with us. He makes a covenant with us. A covenant whereby God gives us himself and demands of us ourselves. God gives us everything. He demands everything. Now that's what a father-son, father-daughter relationship is all about. That's never mentioned in this parable. That is true. But it is a theme that comes up in Jesus' ministry again and again and again. And I think that is what is behind. That's what changes everything in this parable if you introduce the element. Now, instead of just seeing these people as workers or laborers, let's say that these were all sons or daughters who have run off away from this landowner. They're like the prodigal son. Okay. Then the father finds them and brings them back, says, come back, be a son, be a daughter, come back, work in the vineyard, be part of my work, you know. If you, if you see that, so that what we're talking about here is not a wage, strictly speaking, but is an inheritance, how now do we think about what each of these workers sh should receive? You know, if you think about it as children, it changes everything. Because, okay, are we going to say, okay, well, this son was born at this point. He's 30 years old now. Then you have little surprise squirt, son or daughter here, born years later. He's only one year old. It's time to receive the inheritance. What you're thinking now? They're both sons. Should they receive the same thing as sons if it's an inheritance? Well, yeah, now our thinking is completely different. If you gave more to the one because he's 30 now, he's been working for the father all these years and a little squirt's only one, no, we'd go, that's not fair, right? Because now you're talking about children. You're not talking about strict employees. And I really think that is what lies behind this. This is the same point that Jesus makes with these other parables when he shocks us. It's to make us think and to shock us out of our whole typical way of thinking. Now let's think about how we fit into this parable. We've each been called into the kingdom of God. 
We've each been called into the vineyard of God. And we are each given a job. And that's not so we can earn our way. That's a privilege to have a job. It means you're important to God. It means you get to be part of His work. It means He's not just going to say, look, you're a mess. And I hired you, but I want you to go over there and sit under that tree. I don't want to hear anything out of you, and I don't want you to move, and I don't want you to say anything, and I don't want you to do anything, because anything you touch, you're going to screw it up. Which is what we would do with ourselves. God says, no, come on. I've got some important things for you to do. I've got some important work here, and I want you to come and help me and to be part of this. This requires, some, this, it requires just the right person, and you're just the right person for this job. Now, Paul makes it clear in Ephesians that while pastors and teachers and so forth have the duty of equipping the saints, and it's easy thus for us to see that they are uh, vine dressers or workers in the vineyard, it is the saints themselves who do what Paul calls the work of service. The work of service, or the work of ministry. Not using ministry with a capital M there like certain special jobs, but the work of ministering to one another. Pastors and so forth are to equip, teach from the Word of God and so forth, but is the people who do the work of service so that the body can be built up, so the vineyard can be built up and made strong and made healthy until, as Paul says, we all together come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the, this is supposed to be a vineyard that has, is so gorgeous, the foliage on it is just great and luxurious, and the fruit is so abundant that anybody passing by wants to turn in. That's the way God pictures the church. So we're all workers in God's vineyards, and at the same time, we are God's vineyard. We're workers in the vineyard, and we are God's vineyard. And so there's a lot of sameness here. We're all sons and daughters of God. We all have the same inheritance. We're all part of the vineyard. We are the vineyard, and we're all called as workers in the vineyard. But there's also a lot of difference. We come into God's kingdom, into His vineyard, at different times. We come from different backgrounds. You know, some of us grow up in a Christian home. And like John the Baptist, there's never a time that we don't believe. And how wonderful that is. Some of us become Christians at 12. Some at 18. Some at 30 or 40. Some become Christians at 70 or 80. And come into the vineyard. We come from different backgrounds. We come in during different stages of life. We live in different times. We live in different places. We bring different talents and abilities that God has given us, so-called natural talents. They're not really natural. They're just stuff God gave us at, at birth or built up within us as we grew up. We all have different spiritual gifts that God has given us. We're all very, very different from one another, and God deals with each of us differently. 
we receive different things. We have different opportunities that God extends to us. We have different expectations that He lays upon us. We have different trials and crosses that He calls us to bear. There's different dark sections of the path that He calls uh, each of us to walk. All of those things are different. And when you think about it, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 what God has predestined. And when he talks about what God has predestined, he doesn't tell us about any events. When we hear, here's what God's predestined, we think, okay, what's going to happen? He doesn't say a word about what's going to happen. He says God has predestined that you will be conformed to the image of his Son. He's predestined a purpose. And the events that occur, what we're given, what we're asked to walk through, what we're asked to bear, what we're asked to trust God through, plus the good delights that he gives us, are whatever it takes for each of us, specifically, each of us individually, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now that's very different. What it takes for each of us to reach that goal is very, very different. And so God deals with us very different from one another. If you're a parent and you have several children and you have them for any length of time, you will find yourself dealing with your children very differently with one another in order to deal with them the same. Right? Parents, you know what I'm saying. You deal with each one of them very individually, very differently, so that you can deal with them the same. So that you can bring them to the same place. Right? If you deal with them all the same, you're really dealing with them very differently. That is to say, very unfairly. Because they're all different. And you have to do different things. And that's exactly what God does with us. So there are differences everywhere among us as Christians. Differences before we became Christians. Differences now that we're Christians. Differences in every way that you can name. But the one thing that is the same across the board is that we are all children. We're all sons and daughters of God through Christ. And our, so our status is exactly the same. Regardless of when you came into the kingdom, regardless of your age, regardless of your background, your circumstances, your talents and abilities God's given you, regardless of your education, regardless of your income or wealth level, we are all fully and equally children of God. And as children, what we receive from God is not a wage. It is an inheritance. And our inheritance is exactly the same as one another. The thief on the cross receives the same inheritance as Paul the Apostle, or Peter the Apostle, or Elijah, or Moses, or Noah, or Samson, or David. Talk about an 11th hour worker, the thief on the cross, with his feet and his hands nailed. 
he receives the same inheritance. What do we inheritance? What is that inheritance? It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with heaven and earth thrown in for good measure. That's what we get. Everything there is. Paul makes that point to the to the first Corinthians because it, to the Corinthians and first Corinthians because they're all looking at one another and comparing themselves with one another and there's all this rivalry and envy and and so forth and that's not fair stuff going on in the Corinthian church and Paul says to them he says you everything is yours Christ is yours I'm yours everything belongs to you heaven and earth it all belongs to you how can you possibly think the way that you're thinking. And no one can take away your status as God's child. Nobody can take that away. Nobody can take away your inheritance. A inheritance is not earned to start with. So you can't unearn it. But an inheritance can be forfeited. And that's one of the points that Jesus is making here. It can be forfeited by one who insists by their perpetual attitude and their perpetual actions over a lifetime that they are not a son or not a daughter. Somebody who over the course of a lifetime through their actions and attitudes keeps saying, I am not a son, I am not a daughter. I insist that you treat me like an employee. That person will in the end receive their wish. And I think that is what is behind Jesus' words at the end here. Many are called, but few are chosen. Notice the ominous words of the landowner to the first workers who insist that they be treated like employees and so forth. Go your way. Or his last words to them. So as a child of God, and here's the takeaway, as a child of God whose inheritance is secured, with whom God will deal with you uniquely and individually based on who he made you, what your needs are, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, you don't need to worry about who's different from you. You're free from that. You're free. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about what somebody else is getting. You can let that little voice that's always saying, what about me? Let that little voice go away. You're free of that. You know, we can see this lived out in the life of the apostles because Jesus makes the point here. He says twice, once at the beginning and once at the end of this section, the first will be last and the last will be first. Well, in the first end of this, the apostles are going to be on the receiving end. It's the apostles, if you look at the history of Israel, the apostles are, and the early disciples are the 11th hour workers, right? And that's why there, there was so much envy and, and so forth from the leaders that were in power at the time. But the last are going to be first. 
It's going to be the apostles and the first disciples who are going to be the true leaders of Israel, who are going to be speaking the true way, who will determine what happens to Israel in the first century. So they're going to be kind of the beneficiaries of this first, last, last, first kind of equation. But he brings this back up again in the end because this is not just something that's going to happen in that generation. This is a kingdom principle. And he's warning the disciples and the apostles that you get to experience both ends of this. And so you've got to stop thinking like an employee and start thinking like a son or you're never going to get it. You're never going to get it. And just think, of, think about Peter. Peter starts out as, you might say, the chief apostle. He's, not, uh, he's like the first among equals. They're all equals. They're all the foundation of the church, as it says in, um, in Revelation, with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. But nevertheless, at the very beginning, Peter is the preeminent. It is Peter who preaches the very first Christian sermon with thousands of listening on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. It is Peter through whom Jesus either brings or verifies every new people group into the kingdom of God. It is Peter uh, when it is heard that the Samaritans have received the gospel. God withholds uh, the obvious pouring out of the Spirit uh, until Peter can get there and to verify that the gospel has gone to the Samaritans and they have responded. It is through the lips of Peter that the Gentiles first come into the kingdom. Peter, every time, is in this preeminent position in the early days of the church. He is the clear preeminent leader. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, where it needs to be decided do Gentiles come in? Do these 11th hour workers really just come in and receive the same thing? Or do they have to kind of go to the back of the line and become one of us and, and bear this burden we have under the law of Moses and so forth in order to be, you know, one of God's children, one of God's uh, vineyard workers? Peter is no longer in that role. It's a strange thing. Peter is put in prison at one point. And up to that point, he has been the preeminent one. God sends an angel to let Peter out. All the saints are gathered. They're praying for Peter. He shows up. It's the scene where the servant girl comes out and sees him at the gate. And she's so excited, she runs back to tell the other ones and forgets to let him in. So he's still out there at the gate. And they're all gathered, and they think she's seeing things. You know, It's interesting. Peter comes in and talks to them, and then it says he goes to another place. Very strange words. He goes to another place. And after that point, we, Peter is still active. He's still an apostle. He's still one of the leaders of the church. But we don't see him anymore in that preeminent role that he's had up to that point. And at the Council of Jerusalem, it's not it's limited to the apostles. It's all the elders who are involved in making that decision. And the preeminent voice at this point is not Peter or any of the apostles. It's James. James, the Lord's brother, who wasn't even a disciple when Jesus was on the earth. He was one of the brothers making fun of Jesus. Oh, Jesus has got a bunch of people following him now. That James is now the preeminent leader in the church in Jerusalem. 
yet you don't pick up a whiff of any kind of problem from Peter or any kind of difficulty. Peter is one of the voices that is heard. It is James' words that end up being the final word and, and sealing the deal, so to speak. So here comes James. Now here's another one. Here's a last first, first, last situation where the apostles aren't on the receiving end, are they? And then enter Saul of Tarsus. Talk about the ultimate 11th hour worker. This isn't a guy who was standing idle in the village because nobody had hired him. This is a guy who's been trampling the Lord's vineyard. He's been persecuting Christians and putting them to death. And when it's time for Jesus to call one to be an apostle to the Gentiles, he doesn't call Peter. He doesn't call any of the apostles. He doesn't call James. He doesn't call Philip. He doesn't call any of these great early saints. He picks this murderer named Paul. He says, you. Into the vineyard. Yet there's no sense of acrimony, there's no sense of envy or resentment or anything like that among Peter or the apostles. What we have to realize is the lesson that Peter learned after Jesus had been resurrected and was spending uh, 40 days appearing to the disciples at different times. Remember Peter had denied Jesus in his last hours and Jesus is restoring him. He's restoring him. And he tells Peter basically that what happened to me is going to happen to you. You're going to be crucified. This is the death by which you will glorify me. He tells Peter that. And then he says to Peter, come, follow me. And he starts walking off. And then Peter turns and sees John sitting there. And he says, Lord, what about this disciple? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, Peter... If I want John to remain here until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. And that's what we all have to learn. Peter's going to get crucified for the faith. John is one of the few apostles we know of who did live after the destruction of Jerusalem and apparently lived until like 90 AD, sometime around that time. He was around a long time. How easy it would be for Peter to say, that's not fair. Well, remember, we treat our children differently so that we can treat them the same. And that's what God does with us. Peter will die a martyr's death. John will not. We don't need to worry about it. You don't need to worry. You're free from all of those kind of things. Now, the very last thing I want to say is to bring up the biblical concept of rewards. We've talked about wages. Wages are out. We've talked about inheritance. Inheritance is in. That's what we receive. We all receive the same. The Bible also speaks about rewards. And where do those come into the equation? In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, look, Christ is like a foundation. And there's only one foundation you can have, and that's Christ. But he says, when we live our lives in faith, 
It's like building on that foundation. What are we going to put on top of the foundation that Christ is in our lives? How are we going to live from this time forward? He says, we can build on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, or we can build on it with wood and hay and straw. But you can't take the foundation away. And he says, if anybody's work endures, like gold, you can put it in the fire. Wood and hay is going to burn up. Gold, all the fire does is get any impurities out of it. It just makes it purer gold, better gold. He says, so that which remains, gold, silver, precious jewels, he will receive a reward. Now, how does this fit? Well, if you think about it, a good father not only gives a great inheritance to his children, a good father also rewards his children. Sometimes it's something little, you know, giving one of them a dollar, giving one of them this little thing or that little thing. Sometimes it's very uh, small things. And if you think about it, as parents, what is it that we really want to reward our children for? It's not the inheritance. You're not taking away from the inheritance. It's just some little special thing you give to a child, um, some little special favor, a little grace. Um, it's usually when that child has manifested something that shows forth the heart and the mind that we're trying to get them to embrace. When that shows its way through sometimes, even in a small way, and especially if nobody else is looking, so there's no glory that they can be going for, you know, that is very special to us as parents, and we want to reward it. And the Bible shows us that God rewards us the same way. And so what we really need to ask is like, again, it's not merited, it's not earned, it's not a wage, it's not obligated. Remember, God, the landowner, is good. He loves to give good things. He recognizes goodness even in impure form. What is it then that God rewards in us? He rewards, in short, faith. Faith that works its way out. Faith works. And faith works only one way. It works through love. That's what Paul says in Galatians. He says, all these other things don't matter. What matters is faith working through love. Faith, genuine faith, always does something. Okay? It does something. It thinks a certain way in your mind. It, it has a certain attitude in your heart. And those thoughts and attitudes produce words. And they produce actions. And sometimes it keeps you from saying certain words and keeps you from saying certain actions. Faith works through, word, uh, through love. And that's the kind of thing that God rewards. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't be like the Pharisees who are always doing things to be seen. Same thing. They're always comparing themselves to others. And are they seen by others? And that's where they're looking for a reward. Jesus says, don't worry about whether anybody is seeing you. You live before the face of your father. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Your father will reward you. That's what he says. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, look, even a cup of water 
that is extended to somebody in my name, in other words, because you're a Christian, because they're a Christian, even a cup of water that faith motivates. Faith makes you take the cup of water and take your hand from here to there and to give to somebody. It doesn't matter if it's perfect. It doesn't matter that everything we do is still tainted by sin. That's not the point. It is faith that made you do that. It is faith that made you act in love. And that is what God sees. And so Jesus says in Mark 9, he says, not even a cup of water will be forgotten. Nobody else may have seen it. I saw it. I'm never going to forget it. You're not going to lose a reward. I don't miss those things. And so as workers in the Lord's vineyard, and as the Lord's vineyard, we're to bear fruit, and we're to help one another bear fruit. We're to bear fruit, and we're to help one another bear fruit. And the paradox is this. The more we help others bear fruit, the more fruitful we are ourselves. When you think about the fruits of the Spirit, they're all things that we really can't manifest except in relation to somebody else. Right? Somebody who lives on top of a pillar for 30 years can't really claim to be such a great loving individual, can they? All the fruits of the Spirit are in relation to other people. That's how they show themselves. They can't show themselves any other way. And here, this is again the freedom of being able to forget ourselves. You don't have to worry about bearing so much fruit yourself if you're concerned about helping the others around you to be fruitful before God. And that doesn't mean standing over them like a taskmaster. That means serving them so that they see the grace of God more and more and the fruit of God comes out in them more and more. So if you're making other people fruitful like that around you, what does that mean about you? You're very fruitful. The person who's always concerned about my fruit and not about making anybody else fruitful is a person who's not very fruitful, even though they're always concerned about their own fruit. See how this works? You see how this inverts everything about the normal way that we think? I commend all these things to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.